The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Nicholas Glinsman. Nick, I, uh, I'm excited to talk to you because I think you and I probably start from the same point of view, which is that most of the talk around the death of the, of the reserve currency status on the dollar is probably bullshit. So with that said, Nick, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved interested in markets? And what are you doing currently? Currently, I'm a, a co-founder and partner of Malmgren Glinsman Partners. Malmgren being Harold Mal- Dr. Harold Malmgren, uh, who was a um, special advisor and ambassador for presidents and has extraordinary in-depth knowledge that is always well-founded. It, and I'll, I won't say any further than that. And we we got pulled into this commentary research side of the business uh, due to a couple of very large accounts require, requesting it, our analysis. And it suddenly became, okay, that analysis was on a more regular basis. And my background is um, I started back in the mid-80s at Merrill Lynch in London, moved to Merrill Lynch in Australia and the US. Then in 1990, joined Salomon Brothers, where I was very happily ensconced for 10 years. And I ended up running futures and options trading for the European product globally. Subsequent to that, set up a hedge fund with a couple of Salomon colleagues. But my ultimate uh, hedge fund uh, experience takes me to primarily Brevin Howard in London, where I'd been a couple of times, uh, went back for more pain. But uh, it was a place that I loved working in, loved the people. Uh, it was sort of running money in a library environment, and um, but we're very cooperative. And, you know, every day was a learning process, regardless of who you were. So um, that's my background. And, and for the last, uh, I would say, seven years, I've been working as a consultant to a couple of hedge funds, but now working full-time with uh, Harold on uh, getting this, this research out and commentary out. And that re- that, you know, that's p- the predominant part of our business. We do have it, some exposure to asset managers as well. Since you mentioned um, Merrill Lynch in the ma- mid-80s and that you're, you're in London, I assume that uh, you probably were reading some of the work from Bob Farrell uh, back then. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I was at one of the, one of the, the areas that I got involved with for a couple of years was to, to help set up the uh, European government bond sales 
trading and research. So, um, you know, we were very, the research side got very close to the U.S., the U.S. Uh, partners, as it were. It was one of those shifts in the mid-80s. Mid Prior to that, I always felt that New York houses treated London as a branch office. But once uh, London, not just at Merrill, but at a couple of other places, started to move into you know, primary trading in the European government bond markets, it became much more of an equal partner, as it were. New York ended up looking for information that was relevant to them, and vice versa. So, yeah, very much read Bob Farrell and uh, the rest of the boys out in the U.S. and spent a lot of time in New York, to be honest with you, and Chicago, obviously. So I mentioned that because my um, my father had worked on Bob Farrell's team in the mid to late 80s alongside a gentleman named Steve Chauvin, which that name might sound a little bit familiar to you as well. So I always like to talk to people that recognize the notice names. I've been trying to get Bob Farrell on one of these Twitter spaces for a while. He's in his 90s. Uh, he's responding to me, but you know, it's not clear if he's ever going to accept, but uh, we'll see. I want to relate that. Well, I, I got to tell you, Mike, Michael, I, your name rang a bell. And I guess that may be in the, the recesses of my subconscious, I, but I'm not sure. Because I'm, you know, the thing about Mer Salomon was much more small, much more contained than you were within your groups. And yes, I was in fixed income, but, you know, it was either the trading floor or the arbitrage desk. Or prop, or prop trading, that's where the domain was. But in, at Merrill, it was, you know, we had to in, interact with research. We had to interact with the sales and trading. We had to, so much interaction. And you came across, I came across a lot more people at Merrill than I did at Salomon, even though most of the people at Salomon, you know, are still extremely close friends. Yeah, you're making me smile as you say that. My, my father's first name was Ehab, uh, an Egyptian first name, but uh, more of a side note. So uh, Ehab Gayad. Okay, so so one of Farrell's rules was there are new, no new eras. Excesses are never permanent. Given that you got decades of experience, have covered the research side for a while and done the, the hedge fund side as well, is this era at all different from the past? I mean, you often hear those lines that this is uncharted territory, given debt, given inflation. What are your thoughts on how similar this period looks to other prior cycles in history? Look, I think there's a lot of similarity. I think one of the big differences that I've noticed is on the buy side, whether at a bank just trading flows or at a, a hedge fund or a fund manager, people have no time. You know, so things have got to be Twitter, you know, 140 letters or, or Twitter size commentary is what people really want. They don't have much time to read. You know, there's an, one of, one of our clients has my, has our stuff printed every day where there's a daily commentary and uh, a filing stack put into the partner's bathroom which is where a lot of more intense reading is done. But I actually aim for, you know, our, any daily output gets sent before lunchtime New York because I think that is a reading time. It certainly was when I was, uh, you know, running money for Brevin, whether it was London or, or from home or, or whatever. But, but I think people just don't have enough time. There's information overload. And I question a lot of the information that's out there, okay, until I've actually – spoken to somebody and found out what their background is, I'm very skeptical unless it's something that suddenly hits me hard as, you know, that's interesting and they're willing to then talk. So I, I think what we have, and I think it's propagated by the social media too, 
And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be derisive or denigrate any of people that make a living out of their letters, etc. But I, I am really very cynical as to who adds value, who doesn't add value. And I think what because of this, what what is clearly a more apparent short-termist approach to the markets, that worries me because then people are ignoring the medium to longer term trends that are beginning to occur or are hinted, you know, or the markets are hinting are about to start. And that, you know, when it happens, it becomes, you know, people say, oh, it's a gray swan or it's a black swan. Actually, no, it's not. Okay. You know, if you look at what happened to the treasury market a month ago with when we started to see, or less than a month ago, the issues with the with the SVB and the banking situation, I thought the move index, which measures volatility in treasuries, and the ICE index that Bloomberg provides, which shows you whether how the liquidity is in terms of bid offer spreads and whether you can get size done, that was telling me something's just not right and it could be about to happen. I think I think Michael, you you would understand this. If you're a forex trader, one of the things you're looking at across the you know the various currencies is what's the volatility doing? If you have a spike in volatility in dollar yen or euro, etc., you know that's a warning sign that something's coming. Okay, well it's the same with the move index and the treasury market, which is the most liquid market out there in terms of risk assets. It used to be the same with the VIX, but I think the VIX, I think the VIX has suffered another hit recently. But I think the original hit to the VIX as in, in terms of institutional information that I could use if I was trading at, Bre- at Brevin or, or Saddam or wherever was watered down dramatically the minute you had Credit Suisse come out with the first ETF and it became commoditized towards retail. Okay. And that's no, I'm not being nasty in, in any way about retail, but there's a different information set that drives retail versus institutional. So VIX has been less useful. I think the VVIX is, is more useful, but it doesn't mean that those areas of institutional volatility info are not of use. So if you see spikes in in volatility in the move index, which is US treasuries, you know there's spikes going on in the European government bonds. That's a warning that was something was coming. And you know, we were telling people, listen, we're positioned for higher yields, but something's going on. If you want to maintain your position for higher yields, let's do some hedging. Let's do you know uh, a call spread on five or ten year treasury prices, put spread on yields. I looking for lower yields just in case, and that turned out to be very fortuitous. It meant that we were we were sort of delta neutral and could take our time to adjust and you know if you're in this if you're looking at treasuries right now you've got to think that some of the economic data the softer data is certainly indicating problems i'm the the the, the release i'm really looking forward to is the senior loan officers data coming out of the fed i think it's a couple of days time because i think that's going to be a big driver it will tell you what's going on in the banking system the availability of credit so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm always looking at, you know, vol to give me information. And then, of course, you know, you can obviously trade vol, but the, the vol volatility, when you get spikes, 
take note of that information because it tells you something's coming. And that's what we, we saw recently. And by the way, I, I, I'd, I'd agree with you 100%. I mean, part, a, lot of my, a lot of my work is around the idea that certain areas of the market will move first and there's this kind of gradual diffusion of information, you know, in quote, smart money notices or see something before the averages do. Uh, so they position in advance to certain areas like treasuries, like utilities, uh, like lumber, like gold. So I think that that point is very well taken. Now, I want to go back to what you mentioned about being cynical because I kind of share the same sort of mindset. And that, <laughs> and that point about, you know, people just don't have time. There's a lot less time to do things now than maybe there was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. I'd actually argue it's, it's even far worse than than the way you framed it in that most people's understanding of the world comes from headlines and yes exactly right, and, and exactly. the headlines completely agree. right right and the headlines and and we're entering another whole another fascinating phase i think of of society in that the headlines now are not even being written by human beings they're written for the purposes of clickbait seo even this twitter space type. it's all sensational it's all it's all right. sensational I'll give you the greatest example I've seen over the last couple of weeks, and we've had a lot of information. Yesterday, the FT came out last night with this headline. Let me see if I can actually get the real headline. And I'm no fan. Of, I, I used to be a big fan of the FT. I'm not, not anymore. I just think that a lot of that stuff has just uh, fallen by the wayside. It was a headline to do with China, and it was to do with the currency. Uh, so I've got to go under China Remimbi's share of trade finance doubles since start of Ukraine war. Now, folks, please forgive my language. That is one hell of a bullshit headline. What they're talking about is a move from 2% of trade in, in February to 4.5%, probably represented by everything they do with Russia, and it means nothing. So then you look, oh, there's been an increase in the euro trade. Okay, fine. Do you know what happened with the dollar? It went from 86.5% to 84.5% of global trade. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. It is completely insignificant, yet you get this headline, Remimbi's share of trade finance doubles since the start of Ukraine war. You can't... My, my thought process to revolves around two, two ideas when it comes to disseminating news and trying to assess what it means. You can't read the headline. In fact, it's the last thing you should probably be reading. And secondly, you've got to go and do the analysis. You have to do the analysis. If you don't do and that headline should fit into a much bigger thought process, which as a fiduciary who's trading and looking after other people's money, you've always got time to read. You should always have time to read. You should always have time to converse with people that you, you care about in terms of information flow. And you should always be there listening to Zoom conference calls organized for the firm or, or more broadly speaking. And it just strikes me that 
if you rely on news, I mean, Bloomberg comes out with some appallingly bad headlines. I have to say, where, where I do like Bloomberg is Bloomberg surveillance with Tom, Jonathan, and Lisa Abramovich. And, you know, today with the CPI, Lisa's going, I don't understand the market reaction. And that's a fair assumption to say. But it's interesting because I think she probably should be, if she was looking at the CFTC futures positioning on Friday, the Friday report, that probably told you a lot of the reaction of the last couple of days. Extreme shorts in equity, bonds, et cetera. The risk was always going to be what, we, what we've been seeing the last couple of days. So you can't just, you can't rely on the headlines. The head, actually, clever money will wait for the initial reaction and then go the other way. That, that the clever money time. is not on FinTwit, I will tell you. <laughs> exactly. Exist. And, and but the, the reason I went with that point is even, even the name of this Twitter space I started playing around with this the last several days, was written by AI. Yeah. I didn't put together the title. I put together a bunch of keywords. I got a whole bunch of options from a chat GPT type algo, and it came up with that. And I think it's actually fascinating because what's happening now, and it does impact markets in a big way, is you end up having AI creating titles, which are sensationalists trying to get uh. views. But that also impacts the crowd's view of what happens next to asset classes. So it formed exactly. the narrative, I mean, right, and then the flows in a particular investment uh, opportunity. And tell me whether the renminbi's moved. It hasn't. You know, if, if, if we're getting so much more, we're still at 688 to 690. Who cares, right? Who really, you know, who cares? I mean, the one thing that, that probably, you know, I just sit there, I watch a lot of this, this stuff, and I just filter out noise. But I want to be aware of the noise because that noise can give you an opportunity, okay, uh, uh, if you're running money. My, what I've noticed, Michael, I don't know whether you've noticed the same, but the people I really respect on the, on the portfolio side, management side, the hedge fund. So if I go and talk to you know, a couple of the founding partners at Bremen, and I really, you know, track record, everything, yes, I've had one down year, but it's a business. It's an institution that's been built since since the start. They've tran- They've gone from, you know, being at the desk all the time to no. You put your positions on. Your team manages delta risk where it's necessary, but you put higher conviction trades on and you walk away for a while. And that is actually that's where you make the money. Our our aim on the Malmgren Glinsman partners is we're not looking, you know, we're, we're, we've considered more value add is if we consider the slow moving money like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and hedge fund traders that put on a lot, you know, treat, you know, if you go to, for example, Chris Rockus, Rockus Management, there's no doubt in my mind, he turns around and says, I've got a lot of, a huge amount of my money in here and I'm going to run it like a family office. Yes, within risk parameters that he has to accept, and he, he does. But the point is he's putting on positions that may initially look contrarian positions, but he's thinking ahead. He's thinking three, six, 12 months ahead. What are the big trends that are coming down and why? And that's why you have to read. You've got to think about these things. You know, it's a, lo- it's, it's a losing game trading headlines being short term, you know, that's where I mean these zero days to expiry options are, in my opinion, they're an abhorrence. They're bad for the investors because you're paying 
very high short-term volatility that gets wiped out within four hours, or if not shorter, and you're just you're basically punting. That's a casino trade. Yeah, I'd argue. I'd argue. Thinking about the market. I'd argue it's designed to widen the wealth gap. I mean, day trading has been shown unequivocally to result in losses. Now you've just amplified that with more leverage of zero DTE to begin with. So exactly. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. 100%. That's exactly right. And I'm I'm sitting there wondering what Gensel is doing at the SEC. Right. He's he's presided over crypto blowups, banking blowups, and zero days to expiry options. And let me tell you, the the, the market makers who are because I ran an option option part of my brief at Salomon was running options. The the market makers who are the toughest to make money from are the options market makers, right? And you don't want to you don't, you, you you really don't want to be paying them premium all the time. But zero days to expiry is just printing money for them. That's probably if you're going to go into market making, that's where you should go because it's just it's just a ticket to print money. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very simpatico on that. Okay, so so let's go back to the point about headlines. All the headlines the last three weeks have been this you know constant slamming of you know the dollar's about to lose the reserve currency. To your point, these numbers are very small in the grand scheme of things. But but lay out lay out the argument for to, to counter all this. All this talk, which let's face well, it, the, the, the idea of the dollar losing its reserve currency is not a new concept. People have been saying this for, for a decade plus. They said it 20 years ago with the advent of the euro. What happened there? The euro is actually dependent on dollar swap lines, by the way. So if I go, we have an economics argument that people seem to just ignore. So we looked for another argument. Let's start with the economics argument to clarify that. You are talking about a communist country giving up control of its currency or giving up its trade surplus to su- and turning it into a current account deficit to supply renminbi as a reserve currency neither will happen there's no way shall we say it xi jinping because that's all it, we're talking about one person is going to give up control over any of domestic policy he will not open the current the, the, the currency to free float because there'll be a massive outflow of money if you just look at what's going on to Hong Kong and then from Hong Kong to Singapore, you're seeing it already. And he will not, you know, he did, interestingly enough, he has downgraded exports because there was a Kyushi. Kyushi is a, a journal, for the official journal for the Communist Party of China. So anytime you see Xi Jinping's writings in there, it's very important to take note. And back in, in uh, I believe it was, late January, there was an article attributed to Xi Jinping whereby he said, we're going for domestic consumption and infrastructure. Okay, they, They've been going for domestic consumption for God knows how long. But in that same paper, he downgraded exports to beneath those two, whereas exports had previously been primary. That, was, that we felt was partly a realization that the world was not, not in a good place. And, and you you know, there's export data coming out tonight, trade data coming out in China tonight, which we expect to look pretty poor. And you can you can correlate that with ISM manufacturing, all sorts of correlations, which will point you in that direction. So he's downgraded that. So that was an important aspect. But they still are a neo-mercantilist entity country who like their surpluses. Clearly. Interestingly enough, we believe they're looking for dollars. They've got a shortage of foreign currency. Okay, so economically, China will not give up 
control over the currency so we won't get a free float, and they won't give up their surplus to provide a deficit which supplies the rest of the world with the reserve currency. You've had the deficit from the U.S. Since the Marshall Plan, it grew into a deficit as the Eurodollar market grew and demand for dollars as a safe, as the reserve currency grew. You had that with the U.K. as well beforehand. Okay, now then. So that's the economic argument. Two, of, two key aspects the Chinese won't follow. Okay, if ever the renminbi became reserve currency, you'd have a depression in those current countries using it as a reserve currency because there won't be enough renminbi. Now, what we did is people don't seem to accept that. Okay, let's find something that will be very hard for them not to accept. And we think that was exemplified or is exemplified with what's going on between Singapore and Hong Kong right now. There is a battle to become Asia's financial hub. And what I mean by financial hub is not, you know, have you got most most volume in the stock exchange relative to the, your competitor? That's that's not relevant because Hong Kong can always do that because of the, what's going on in China. No, we're talking about financial hub for fiduciaries, for asset managers, for where you want your family office and your family money. Okay. Now, why Singapore is winning over Hong Kong and it's increasing. They've set up a structure that works really well versus Hong Kong, Hong Kong structure. But it's not even to do with the structure. It's actually to do with the law. Okay. I think we'd all, all admit that the law of finance is basically common law. It's Anglo-Saxon law. Okay, the history, the law of precedence, in interpretation of legislation. Okay, New York, London, is it decades of proof, if not longer, actually. So, if you accept that it's a law of finance, where your rights to property are acknowledged through contract law, law of tort, and in fact, law of trust, trust law, then that's where you want, as a fiduciary, to have your money. If you decide, no, I'm going to have it in Hong Kong, Hong Kong, I think we'd all admit, is now part of mainland China, which means that it's, it's dependent on the malleable law of a single person, Xi Jinping. It can be changed. And I think you've seen it with the arrest of, I never remember, is it Bao? The uh, invest, high-tech investment banker, the high-tech financier, who was arrested. He was arrested they were going to get him anyway. But the thing that triggered the arrest was he was trying to move his money out of Hong Kong into Singapore. Okay. Arrested. No, no other reason. Now, if we accept that common law is the law of finance, and that's where you as a fiduciary get recognized in terms of what's yours, your property, that's the trust that's built and implicit even explicit in the dollar as a reserve currency. Okay? The trust garnered from common law. It was the same when it was the British pound in years past. So if law, the law of finance is common law, that's where, that's where your trust has been built in the dollar as a reserve currency. So let me give you a couple of examples where you don't have that. There's property contractual rights if you're going to go and your money in China. Mark Mobius was complaining he couldn't get his money out. Tell me G General Motors, even Tesla, they can't get their money out. There is an argument to be said that 
the last several years of foreign direct investment in China is actually foreign corporates retained earnings, which cannot be ex- ex- taken out of, extracted from China. Okay, there's, there's another. South China Seas. So the UN and the Hague have ruled that you have an economic zone around your country. That has been completely ignored by the Chinese. Let's take a current example that's going on. Malaysia, which is rather friendly towards China, is now in dispute with China because China is disrupting Malaysia's development of natural offshore natural gas reserves. Okay? So that's a rule imposed by China, contrary to what the Hague and the UN Convention is for the, the maritime law. If you go further, I'll go back and I'll give you another example, which I think is, is really, it's a really good example, which people don't necessarily think about. The London Metals Exchange and the experience with nickel. Now, yes, every futures exchange has had issues where a fat finger has entered a trade that was wrong. Those trades get canceled. But you haven't had a whole morning's worth of trades canceled because it didn't suit your preferred trader. And what you had with nickel is, remember, London Metals Exchange, for some reason, got sold to HKEX. It's owned by Hong Kong, China, i.e., in our words, don't even think about Hong It's owned by China. The guy that was short nickel as it was booming up in short covering panic to 100,000 was the biggest nickel producer in China. He was close to the, the right political circles within the CCP, i.e. Xi Jinping. All the trades adver- most adverse to him on that particular day where you went up to 100,000 got cancelled, which is why the LME is now being sued by the likes of Elliott Associates and so on. That was not a rule of the exchange. That was not accepted by most members and actor- actors within the exchange, but it worked really conveniently for that per- personal friend of Xi Jinping, who was the one that was massively short. So I would say that actually China Im- tries to impose its own view of the law that suits them best, even outside of its own area of legal sovereignty. So you've got two, two situations there. Within China, you have no control. And even outside of China, you have to be alert to the idea that the Chinese can influence decisions that will cost you. So as a fiduciary, and within the term of fiduciary, not only do I look at asset managers, but I look at people responsible at, ver- at corporations, responsible for transactions, cross-order transactions. If you're selling a good, you know you want to be paid for that good. Okay. If you're managing money, you know you want to keep control of that money at all times. If you're a fiduciary who accepts that responsibility, as is the, you know, one would expect, you're not going to put money in China or any, in any area that's located within the influence of China. And, and I do think, by the way, that the reason people don't think in these terms, because you're 100% right, it, it, the difference maker is the, the stability of the legal framework, right? The, people don't think of the terms exactly. of home bias because they think that the, another country's legal system works similar to what happened in the U.S. or in the U.K. And so, so you end up having all this talk around the yuan is going to overtake everything. But unless you actually have a global view, unless you've dealt with other cultures, unless you've actually maybe even lived in China, 
you can't possibly appreciate right. the impossibility of all this. That's it, exactly it. This is, you know, and this is where we go back to what you and I were talking about right at the beginning. People should make time to read and study and dig deeper rather than just taking the headlines. If you just take the headlines, you've got no idea about this. We had a vice chairman of a very major bank. We sent that paper talking about Singapore winning over Hong Kong, but it's all about the law of finance. It's all about common law. And he turned around and said, you've, you've put it into words what I've been trying to tell everybody here, that we, ha- we as a Western bank, even that give, regardless of our history in the East, have to focus on the Anglosphere. And he defined the Anglosphere as those economic areas that come within common law. Because otherwise, you can't be guaranteed of the outcome, despite the fact you may have contrary, uh, contracts to that. Think about actually, think about the history of Hong Kong since it was passed over to China. It's meant to be, you know, they were meant to uphold, uphold the UK legal system, particularly the judicial system. Well, that got blown out, you know, before the pandemic when they introduced the national security law. Okay. And we've seen sort of the UK UK and the Commonwealth appeals judges have been sort of disinvited from the process. That was never meant to happen. So basically, a treaty that's in the, the vault at the UN has been unilaterally ignored by Xi Jinping. I think that ends up costing Hong Kong relative to Singapore. I think Singapore is on a winning wicket. There's no doubt about it. And if you look at the fiduciary activity, it's, you know, I think they're outperforming Hong Kong six to one this year. And there is huge demand for Chinese money to move into Singapore. So that, that to me is, I think, a great example of how common law prevails over anything else, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, the interest, you know, if I give you an interesting example of common law prevailing, the Swiss are experts in the law of trust. They don't have law of trust. They don't have trusts within Switzerland, but they understand it because a lot of their clients have trusts set up and want them banked through Switzerland. Not not in an illegal manner, but you know, just for confidentiality. So that's how prevalent it is. And people forget that and you know, when I say China is uninvestable, I'm talking about putting money into China is uninvestable. I mean, you know, we just look at what's going on right now with the finance sector is about is on the verge of going through the same attack that the Chinese government put on tech over the last eighteen months. It's going to be a bloodbath. Okay, what's left? You know, what's left? I mean, it's all to do with bonuses. It's all to do with corruption, quote unquote, because it it should be in parenthesis. They don't, you know, political ideology trumps economics in China under Xi Jinping. Real estate bubble, that was the biggest bubble in history that burst. People think there's a resolution to that coming. There's no resolution. Dead cats can bounce. But that that sector has been destroyed. And you know, when you're looking at resolution, again, let's go back to fiduciary. How have the foreign creditors in the Chinese real estate market fared since it, the bubble burst? They're looking for money. There's there's been no no money. Evergrande have they sorted out their foreign creditors? Not at all. But domestic creditors were given preference. Now, please make sure you follow Nicholas uh, Glinsman here on Twitter. 
if you're interested in learning more about the kind of research that he puts out, uh, feel free to obviously reach out to him. And as always, this will be on all your favorite platforms. Nick, maybe just for the remaining few minutes here, I want to touch on the ECB and real estate. Oftentimes here in the States, we talk about commercial real estate, talk about housing. Uh, I happen to think those are lingering tail events. And I use the word events purposely when I say that uh, that could lead to a credit type of uh, blowout. But we're doing a paper right now, and I've been shocked by something I discovered in the numbers on US real estate, which I will end with as opposed to start with. Let's start with the, the European commercial real estate market. Yeah, let's at that. Because uh, that's, that's also, an area I don't really hear, hear yeah. too much about. And, and I'm going to assume that the dynamics are not that dissimilar from the States. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yes, probably because Europe itself is less inclined towards following the UK and the US markets where a lot of it is then securitized, that exposure. Yes, there are banks there. However, there are securities in Europe for commercial real estate. They're known as real real estate investment funds. Now, what was in, what's interesting is the ECB, European Central Bank, actually came out with a warning on these. There's a mismatch on funding versus liquidity. And property prices have already fallen quite a bit in recent months in Europe, particularly, of course, the older office. It seems like those real real estate investment funds, I refer to margin call in that scene with Jeremy Irons, be first, be smarter, or cheat. He likes to be first. If somebody decides to offload their exposure to real estate investment funds, it's not a liquid market. There'll be problems and then there'll be collateral damage, spillover risks to other financial institutions, some of which are banks in countries. I mean, if you look at Sweden, has the banks are quite exposed to CRE. Germany, they're quite exposed. Other banks, less so. Other countries, less so. So it, it's country by country. I just found it fascinating that a central bank like the ECB could come out with a paper, which I think was two Mondays ago, actually issuing a warning on financial stability related. I suspect the banks hold the assets themselves. They're invested in them. And that's where it different, the differentiation between Europe and the US comes. Because what I discovered over the last couple of days whilst writing this paper is, and this may shock people, people are looking at the banks in the US being exposed to commercial real estate. I don't think they are. I think it's insignificant. I think it's the holders of the the investors in commercial real estate funds and CMBS that are the ones going to be hit. And those that have invested in the office buildings themselves, which which is rarely the bank. Okay, so the US banking outlook in regard to that, I do think the crisis is multiplicative I think there's more stuff to come, more bad stuff to come. But I think it's in the shadow banking, and I think it's in on the investor side. And that's where all the damage is going to be done in the US. 
you know, if you want me to quantify what's going on in the banks, just got the figures here. So I'm just going to, I want to give you certain figures properly. It looks to, to office space, vacant. Yeah, here we go. Banks exposure to CRE debt, because it's the debt in the US that's the issue. Size of the CRE mortgage market is roughly four and a half trillion in the US. I could break them down into loans, but the the exposure of the banks is insignificant when you come to it. In the broader sense, you could have one, you know, a couple of regional banks fully exposed because that's their business. But in the bigger side of things, it's it's just a small, you know, the top 25 banks have relatively little exposure to office loans. Office mortgages account for less than 1% of their assets. Insignificant. So it's the investors that are going to suffer. Now, in Europe, I think we think given it's 40% of the CRE market is represented by real estate investment funds that have no liquidity on the way out, gone. Forget the liquidity on the way out. That and also given that you have a mark to mark, not mark to market, but mark to myth in Europe, if if there starts to be trouble there, that will extrapolate to the banks because the banks are either providing leverage to investors for these products or they sort of got greedy and, and invested themselves. US, on the other hand, is not the banks, which I found, I found extraordinary given everything you read in the papers, even in some research. Everybody's saying, is the banks are going to get killed with commercial real estate? It's not. A couple of small ones, maybe, small regional ones, is going to be the investors who are going to suffer. Now, in the case of SVB, you know, they were an investor for all intents and purposes without any risk management. But really, most of the banks are not that ex- not exposed. I thought that was fa- – I don't know what you think, Michael, but I thought that was fascinating. And we're coming up with all the data in, in our next piece. But I thought that was fascinating and also not conventional thought. It's not conventional wisdom. How do uh, how would people get access to to that piece to that research? I think I think it's an interesting uh, point you bring up. Well, that's actually our institutional research, though. That usually is a fair amount of coin to get access to it. But um, we, you know, what we what we're doing at the moment is goes to our, our institutional clients first. Then we end up having conversations and providing the data behind it, which we've sourced from extremely reliable sources but um you know otherwise it's looking out for any comments in our our daily piece because we do a daily macro piece um but it it is you know uh, it's part of our business process so we're in in that and that's our next piece is actually that our next piece is to talk about commercial real estate both in europe and the us and funnily enough the piece piece after that's likely to be the consequences of fiduciary responsibility are you a fiduciary or are you not a fiduciary so we're, we're, we're ex, you know we, we're, we're coming out with pieces that then have a lot of papers that will come that relate to them thereafter so you know if i was looking at commercial real estate and thinking about it the nearest historical example i could give you back in 72 73 and i wasn't working then so i'm not that old but I have studied this. The, the Bank of England created what was called the lifeboat. It started off with solvency issues with secondary banks and f- quickly progressed into solvency issues 
with commercial real estate companies. So it ended up being a commercial real estate disaster in the UK in the early 70s. And the Bank of England was pretty heavily exposed and it had pulled in the major banks to help initially, but then the bank had to had to take the full, you know, a very large part of the the exposure and run with that risk. But this is what we've seen is sort of identical. If you think of what they did with First Republic and got some of the major banks to put deposits in, so that was the central bank and FDIC working with big banks to try and solve that issue. Now, if this then spreads to commercial real estate, which I think it will, there's definitely a problem in commercial real estate with old offices, multifamily. There's a problem. Blackstone, just go and have a look at the you know the last month's worth of news on Blackstone. Gives you gives you an idea that there is a problem. Yet there's still money there because they've just raised another thirty billion for real estate. So I think if people have got time, you should go and look up the history of the secondary banking crisis in the UK, 1972-73. It was called the lifeboat. That was the solution from the Bank of England. But it gives you a lot of hints as what's likely to come here, come next here. History rhymes, it doesn't repeat, but this is as close to a repeat as I've seen for a long time. I think that's a uh, good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Everybody, please, again, make sure you follow Nicholas Glinsman here on Twitter. I appreciate everybody joining. Thank you, Nicholas. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.